This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we cover storage efficiency as well as the new flex cache updates for ONTAP 9.12.1. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have a couple of special guests to talk to us about some new functionality in ONTAP 9.12.1 as well as some stuff that we haven't really covered before for ONTAP. So with us today we have Elliot Ecton. Elliot, what do you do here at NetApp and how do we reach you? Hey Justin, I, uh, I'm a technical marketing engineer for NAS Protocols. Kind of took over, slid into your old spot a little bit. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at elliot.ecton at netapp.com. All right. Also with us today, Chris Hurley. Chris, what do you do here at NetApp, and how do we reach you? Hey, Justin. So I am a senior technical product manager for ONTAP here at NetApp, and you can reach me at on Twitter at AverageGuyX, and, of course, my NetApp email, so Christopher.Hurley. At All right, excellent. So we're here to talk about some NAS-related stuff. Specifically, we'll talk about some flex cache advancements, but let's start off with storage efficiency. We've not really gone into a lot of detail about some of the newer stuff that's been in ONTAP in the last few releases. So Chris, what have we done in the last few releases with, with storage efficiency, and when did we start doing it? Yeah, so in uh, ONTAP 9.8, we introduced something called TSSE, so temperature-sensitive storage efficiency. So what that means is your cold data, we're going to take and recompress it with a larger compression group. So you get a little more savings on your colder data. Of course, that's going to give you a little less performance when you're reading that cold data that's already compressed, but it's cold data right? About 14 days is the threshold. So that's going to do in the larger compression group. Now that was 9.8, but in 9.10, we actually added a more aggressive compression algorithm. So Z standard compression, which is, I don't know if everybody knows the Facebook Z standard compression algorithm, but we're using that to actually compress the cold data and get a lot more savings out of it. Okay, so it sounds like that we're looking at storage efficiency from a different perspective than we used to, where basically you're taking the concept of, is data active? But what happens if we start to access that data later on? Like, is that going to have some impact or what is that going to do? Yeah, it is, right? So you're, especially because we're using the larger compression groups, when you're doing small reads, of that cold data, you're going to have to read the whole compression group, right? So there's a little bit of a penalty there, but if you do it enough times, well, there is a mechanism to uncompress it back to the smaller compression group. You still get some savings, but it allows for ONTAP to eliminate that penalty as much as possible. So can you kind of tell me a little bit more about these compression groups? Like, what are the main differences? And is it something that I can modify later on? Can I make the compression group work differently? Or is it just something that's baked into ONTAP? 
It's basically something that's baked into ONTAP. So by default, inline, what we do is we take data and look at 8K chunks of it, right? You know, ONTAP writes in 4K blocks. So we look at 8K chunks of it. And if we can compress that down, of course, into only one 4K block, we're only going to consume one 4K block in ONTAP. Now, in the TSSE model, after 14 days, we'll relook at that data and then use 32K compression blocks. And that way, if we can compress for eight 4K blocks down to seven 4K blocks or six or five or even less, right? That's even more savings. So those larger compression groups from 8K inline to 32K cold TSSE compression groups, that's where you get your savings. And of course, the, the Z standard compression algorithm on that cold data. So what kind of storage savings can I get out of this? How much does it improve how much I save from previous ways we did it? Well, it all depends, right? Every data set has its own compressibility. But by default, the Z-standard algorithm has a lot more in its compression algorithm than what we normally use in ONTAP, which is LZO Pro. And that is also what we use for the inline 8K. You know, I hate to put down a number, but there is some significant increase in the data reduction with Z-standard. And what sort of workloads see better overall results? Like, I know that some workloads are going to be more efficient than others. Where would you see more compression savings versus less compression savings? So things with repetitive patterns, of course, like VDI and VMware and those type of workloads would greatly increase their data reduction with the Z standard compression. But others as well, because the compression algorithms, as they mature, they are able to compress more and different types of data. So as the version increases of that compression algorithm, you're going to be able to compress more and more data. So that sounds pretty cool. Are we looking at even further advancements with compression algorithms? Are we going to add any new things in the future? I mean, I know you can't commit to things, but is that something that we're looking at? Oh, absolutely. We're always looking to improve on that, right? Because what does that translate to? That translates to savings for our customers, right? If you want to store 100 terabytes worth of logical data and you get a three to one compression ratio, then you only need, what, 33 terabytes of storage and you can store 100 terabytes of data. That's a benefit to our customers. Now, like I said, we're always looking at something new, bringing that to the next level and finding new ways to reduce the data in ONTAP. So A, you don't have to buy as much storage to store the same amount of logical data, and B, maybe even get some performance increase for new technologies for the storage efficiency. Are we still doing that guaranteed storage efficiency deal where we basically say you're going to get three to one or four to one with certain workloads? Is that something that we're still doing today? Yeah, we are. We've recently also changed that to a blanket four to one guarantee for SAN workloads. So anything that you run SAN protocol on, you know, your block storage will get a four to one guarantee by default when you enter the program. And for NAS, it is 1.5 to one on that same program. So why is there such a big discrepancy between SAN and NAS for those particular storage efficiency ratios? NAS, of course, everybody knows things called unstructured data, right? And that data compressibility and dedupability is a lot less 
than your structured data workloads, your Oracles, your MS SQL, your VMwares, and anything else that runs on the block protocol. So we have to account for those things. All right. So it sounds like storage efficiency is pretty good at this point. We're getting better with each release. So one feature that we actually have that kind of, I wouldn't say it's a storage efficiency feature, but it helps save space because you're not creating additional data sets. You're basically just creating a sparse cache and that's going to connect to an origin data set. So, you know, instead of creating an exact replica of say hundred terabytes, you're creating maybe a cache that's one gig or two gigs or 10 gigs, whatever, right? So that's traditionally been for mostly reads and that's flex cache. Now we have a new feature in ONTAP 9.12.1 that allows us to do even more with the FlexCache architecture. So what is that, Chris? So we've got what we're calling write performance. It's not quite write back. So FlexCache, as you mentioned, right, it's as far as read-writable volume. But up until now, when you write at a FlexCache, that write gets transferred all the way over the wire to the origin and has to be acknowledged by the origin before it can be acknowledged back to the client. Well, with 9.12.1, we now have the ability to acknowledge that write and store it locally at the flex cache volume and acknowledge that immediately to the client that's writing to the flex cache volume without having to wait for that traversal all the way to the origin. So you said it's not quite right back, but that's what we're calling it. So why is it not right back? Why is it just right performance? Well, the origin still has to be involved with inode creation, so file creations, and it also still has to be involved with opens, you know, locking and that sort of thing. So the main operations that are actually accelerated are the actual write operations. So with a flex cache, you might have multiple caches pointing at a single origin. And I would imagine that applications that leverage the write back or the write performance aspect of it are going to have multiple writes going to the same files in some cases. So how is that handled? It's handled very similarly to how it's handled today, right? So we have the write lock delegations that come to each cache. And then only once that write lock delegation needs to be revoked by the origin, the cache also needs to flush the temporary data that's been written at the cache. So you look at the write lock distribution, the way it sits now in FlexCache, it just means that the write lock stays a little longer at the cache. And so in order for it to be able to write at the cache and then flush it back to the origin when that write lock is revoked. And how is it handled on the origin if we're changing the files there? Does the cache get evicted or is there a lock in place then as well? Let's say you're writing at cache one. As soon as there's a write request from either the origin or another, the origin is going to ask for that write lock back at the cache where that file is being written to. And at that point, once the cache does relinquish that write lock, that's when the data gets flushed. So the next write can happen and that lock will go back to the origin or to the other cache. So it keeps it all in order that way. So let's say there's a weird rare event where three clients have three caches and they're all trying to write to the same file. And at the same time, we're writing a file in the origin. <laughs> who wins there? <laughs> the one who has the write lock, right? Okay. That's the only way you can write is if you have the write lock to the file. 
Now, there is one of those weird scenarios where as you're writing, there's some disconnection that happens, right? And at that point, you have the option to go ahead with write somewhere else because basically the file is held hostage by the disconnected cache. But then what happens there is you basically lose your rights. You have to force that though. If you have a disaster and the cache cluster actually goes away and can't come back, you can force that to happen. So I would imagine that you would just go in and clear the locks from the vServer using like a vServer locks command. It's not quite a vServer locks. It's a flex cache command, but yeah, same concept. Okay. And viewing those locks, would that also be a flex cache command or is that a vServer locks command? That is a vServer locks command. Okay. So what happens if I run a vServer locks command to clear the lock, is that going to not allow it to clear on the flex cache or does that override whatever's on the flex cache lock command? Well, normally the locks are flushed, right? Normal lock operations, you can use vServer locks. But if you need to force a flex cache to be able to move ahead, you have to use flex cache commands. Okay. And is there like a lock timeout period, like a grace period on the flex cache where those locks will eventually release if they can't be reestablished? Under normal operations without write back, there is a two minute timeout, but that's not for the write back. It is a set it and forget it kind of thing, right? So the lock stays forever unless it needs revoked. But for normal write operations where the write around operations, because there's nothing pending at the cache, after two minutes, there's a timeout and all the locks are revoked for that disconnected cache. And is there a way to disable the idea of write back to the flex cache? Like, can you go back to the old behavior? Is there a way to tell it to just do what it used to do? Or is that just something that's baked into the new release? So by default, it stays the same, right? Write back is an option. And we only recommend write back for, for more than 10 milliseconds of latency between the flex cache and the origin. Because of the complexity, it provides actually negative performance increase for anything that is less than about 10 milliseconds of latency between the origin and the cache. Okay, so if you get really low latency between the origin and cache, you're better off just using the old behavior because it's just going to add performance hits that you wouldn't see normally. Exactly. All right, it makes sense. So as far as the new feature, from what I understand, it's a public preview in ONTAP 9.12.1, or is that available all the way? So currently it is a public preview. That just means that feature has gone through only limited testing. We've gone through most regressions, but there are still things that could happen, right? So that's why we're calling it a public preview, but we foresee that we can release it as a GA in a P release after 9.12.1. Okay, cool. So 9.12.1 will eventually have available for everybody. But in the meantime, you probably don't want to put production workloads on this right now. It's more of a kick the tires thing. Correct. Okay. So what sort of use cases are going to get the most benefit out of this? Like what industries are asking for this type of thing the most? Well, of course, flex cash in the EDA is hot, right? And that is really one of those use cases that's really hot and loves to use flex cash. But it's their cloud bursting. And it's not only EDA, right? It's anything that uses cloud bursting but needs some rights at the cloud. 
So, you know, traditionally our cloud bursting has more around reading the data from on-prem in the cloud than doing some work on it and then just writing back some little results. And that's okay. But there's a lot more use cases to where there are constant writes at the cache during the cloud bursting. So using the cloud as it's supposed to be used for capacity bursting or core bursting or however you want to do it. And that is where the write back actually works a lot better. If you have to do performant writes as you're bursting in the cloud, you're not, you don't just need to wait for some results and have that write back right around all the way to the origin. You want some performant writes in that whole workflow while you're bursting up in the cloud. That's one of the biggest use cases we've seen around this. Yeah, and I guess you'd be more likely to see that 10 millisecond latency in the cloud versus doing something in a data center. Right, right. Yeah, the data center is usually five milliseconds or less, or not even five. And for those, you don't want to use FlexCache right back. So that said, how would I know what my latency is? Is there an easy way to find out from ONTAP what the latency between the cache and the origin is? Or is that something that's hard to figure out? No, it's actually fairly easy. So in order to create a flex cache, you have to peer the clusters anyway, right? And ONTAP does have a plus cluster peer ping command. So you can use that to determine what your latency is between the two clusters. Okay, cool. So cluster peer ping will tell me roughly what my latency is going to look like and what I should expect for something like flex cache. Yep. And that goes for other things too as well, right? I mean, we're looking at snap mirror and that sort of thing. There's synchronous snap mirror, which also has a requirement of 10 milliseconds or less. So it's not just flex cache that has this limitation of 10 milliseconds. It's pretty much across the board for any time you're doing something remotely over a WAN. Yeah, exactly. And I would imagine this supports both SMB and NFS use cases, including NFS v4. Absolutely. All the protocols. Cool. And, and another thing to add, I know we added ONTAP S3 exposure to NAS volumes. So am I able to expose a flex cache to object or do I have to do that to the origin? Well, as of right now, it's only supported at the origin. We haven't qualified it for use at the cache yet. All right. And we had something called, I guess, mirroring of caches. Am I imagining that? <laughs> What you probably are talking about is the ability to have the same SID and the same file handles between caches. Is that what you're talking about? It might be. I seem to remember there was some sort of ability to to have some sort of cooperation between caches or mirroring of caches. So tell me a little bit more about how we can do that. So one of the things that you can do is, and we call it flex cache DR, but it's kind of Nah, that's what it was, of, it was DR but, and it throws you yeah. off. That's why I thought it was mirroring. So yes. Yeah, exactly. That. But it's a way for clients to be able to seamlessly move from one cache to another if the cluster were to go down. So when you think of the flex cache, all the rights are right around. So they end up at the origin and it's a sparse volume. It's not a critical production thing, right? It is, of course, but in order to best insulate from failures or anything like that, you can create another flex cache in the same data center or area, right, logical location. And then what it could do is 
both caches will have this exact same file handles. Of course, they have to be in different SVMs, right? If you do it in the same cluster, they have to be in different SVMs, but that way the NFS client can seamlessly move from one cache to another without getting that pesky stale file handle error. So how does it handle the network aspect of that? Is it automatic failover or do you have to remount? No, you don't have to remount. What you have to do is you either in auto mounter or in DNS, where somehow you need to be able to flip your clients to point from one SVM to the other, whether it's in the same cluster or different clusters. That is up to the customer to configure that stuff. So I know when we mount, we have an IP address established and that's a TCP connection established. If there's a cache failure, do we have to have a, the same IP in that SVM or can we use a different IP address? How does that failover happen? I'm not quite clicking for me there. Like, how do we get that lift failover in addition to that? Well, you can bring the same IP up in different clusters if you want or different SVMs. Elliot, you've done some work on that, right? Yeah, I have. So, there's a couple ways to do it. One way is if you have two different clusters, you just keep one down and we'll call it the DR cluster, right? And then when you have a failure to your main site, you would just admin down that IP address and bring it up on the DR cluster and then traffic will start going to that. So it's pretty seamless and the NFS clients don't require a remount. They just keep plugging along. Okay. So basically you're just using the same IP address and then we figure it out based on the network. Now I imagine that MAC addresses are going to be different. So is there any ARP cache clearing that I have to do or does that client just handle it automatically? Everything will be updated by a gratuitous ARP when the IP goes up. So everything in the network will be updated where the new IP address lays. Okay, cool. So, so the IP address comes up and says, hey, I'm here. Here's my new yeah. MAC address. Use this instead. Yeah. Right. You know, there's more ways to do it than that. That's the simplest way to configure it. But you can also do BGP FIPS and bring up a FIP over there. Just other things like that. There's quite a few ways that you can migrate the IP. Load balancers are another way to see if there's liveliness to the IP. Several solutions. Okay. So you mentioned BGP, and that's something that doesn't get a lot of press, right? It's something that just kind of works. So how would that work in ONTAP? Is there anything special I need to configure for that to work, or is it all on my network side? So there's very little to do on the ONTAP side. BGP is a very deep topic, but ONTAP has a very simplistic implementation of it. So to bring a BGP, you need to appear with your routers and you have to work with your network team to get different ASNs and some IP addresses to establish the BGP peer session. And then you just create a VIP on top of that. And there's no layer two, right? So it doesn't have to be in a subnet. This VIP just kind of floats where the BGP peer connections are. So it makes it really easy to migrate an IP address from one cluster to another. And when you do that, all your BGP routers, all your BGP pairing, most of which your network team has set up, will update the BGP paths to get to the new cluster. Okay. And it sounds like that might be a little more seamless than having to manually do things on your end. Yep. Exactly. So this FlexCache DR piece, now I know it's not mirroring necessarily, but with mirroring, we have this concept of read-only access to just destination volumes. Is that something that carries over to FlexCache? Can we do right back to these caches that are doing DR? Unfortunately, with a FlexCache DR, that is a read-only cache, right? Those aren't available to write just because of the complexity with the MSIDs and those type of things. So yeah, for now, it is a read-only cache. Okay. So just limited use case for now, but still it's valuable, right? I mean, we're able to 
keep things going and running in case of outage. Oh yeah, absolutely. Helps for tools distribution, binary distributions, things like that. I mean, it's totally valuable for those. So as the flex cash right back goes, is there any other consideration I need to keep in mind, Chris? Well, yeah. So there's the amount of write back you have in your caches, right? You want to keep that to a minimum. As I mentioned, by default, it is not right because there is some heaviness to it, right? There is some heaviness to this feature. So you, you want to use it intelligently and where it's really needed. Okay. And then that with these early access previews, we let customers kick the tires on these. Did you have any customers running this particular feature? And if so, what was their feedback? Not yet, right? So actually FlexCache right back isn't going to come in until GA. So 9.12.1 GA is when it actually drops in on tap. So as soon as that happens, we're going to get some customers on it and get their feedback. We did get their feedback from the concept and we got all smiles and all thumbs up. Okay. And you said it's not in the RC release. It's only in the GA release. Correct. Okay. So if I'm spinning up a new on tap release, I got to wait for GA to, to have the access to this. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. I would imagine that we have a technical report to talk about flex cash. What TR number do we have for that? That is TR forty seven forty three. This is getting updated soon. It'll have the performance part updated pretty soon. By time, GA rolls around. Will we have any uh, sort of performance numbers that we can look at to see what kind of performance we can expect? Or is that just something that you have to kind of test out in your environment? There is some testing that's going to be going on that uh, is actually going to be starting sometime in the next week or two. So we should have some performance numbers for you to look at. All right, cool. And yeah, it's just a baseline, right? I get an idea of like, yeah. oh, generally this will work. Because I know that every environment is different, but people do yeah. like to have some idea if it's going to be better or worse, if it's worth my time. So yeah. All right. So it sounds like a flex cash right back or right performance, whatever you want to call it is going to be pretty promising here. And I imagine we're going to build on to things later on in future releases. Again, Chris, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? I am online Twitter and other places at average guy X and Christopher Hurley at netup.com. I am very not much on the social media, so we'll just do my NetApp email, which is Elliot at NetApp.com. Two L's, two T's, and Elliot. Cool. We'll include that in the show notes so people don't have to worry about spelling it, and they can just click on the link and email you guys. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at NetApp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap Podcast team, I'd like to thank Elliot Eckton and Chris Hill for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.